Hey there! Are you tired of waiting for the next episode of It's Probably Not Aliens? Well, we've got some good news for you. On Nebula, our streaming service, you can get access to all our episodes a week early. That's right, you'll never have to wait again to hear Scott and I debunk the latest ancient astronaut theory or get a movie fact wrong. But that's not all. Nebula is home to dozens of content creators we know you like, so you can find all your favorites in one place. Plus, we post content on there that you won't find anywhere else. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and listen to the next episode right after this one. thing we always have to mention is that we give out the it's probably not aliens challenge coin to return guests and this is our third return guest i think so our third guest to come on for a second time yes the honor and also probably one of our favoritest of like like well-received guests from the the elder days of it's probably not aliens too i think you're one of our first guests really oh thank you it's an yeah, honor like our to, second to guest yeah we're excited to have you oh. back i love the the, the first wild. episode we had you on was so much fun and we're bringing you bringing you back on for a for, for demand to have you back on the show yeah for anyone doesn't know who we've got back is trey the explainer who also goes by the nickname on the internet as the archaeology twink <laughs> that was a nickname thrust on me i, I <laughs> did not decide the nickname but i'll accept it <laughs> thank you thank you somebody mentioned it in like the comments on a an episode of the podcast but i sent it to you and you were like this is the funniest shit i've ever seen <laughs> my, my dad has seen that like my dad follows me on thank he doesn't follow me on twitter he follows me on youtube and so when uh-huh. i posted like oh like something about like subscribers like thank you so much for doing it somebody like he's like i saw somebody post like the archaeology twink or something like that he's like i don't know what that means <laughs> and i was like oh no that feeling when you have to explain to your dad what a twink is um <laughs> and so i was like oh <laughs> uh, it's a cool it's a cool thing don't worry it's a compliment yeah, don't worry it's, about it's a it cool guy who does cool things yeah that's all you need to know but all the kids are doing now these days. yeah <laughs> I just like uh, he'll be like, yeah, my son's doing great. He's a YouTuber. He's a twink. He's all over the place. He's doing great. <laughs> just <laughs> bragging about it to He's people like, like church. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh my goodness. But yeah. Um. But yeah, Trey. Um. Uh, for those who haven't listened to the episode that we did like almost two years ago at this point, would you like to tell the good people who you are and what kind of stuff you do? Which I know is also a kind of a complicated question. <laughs> because <laughs> i talk about anything now um yeah i'm, I'm trey the explainer i make videos on uh, i mainly make videos on like archaeology stuff and history stuff now but I, I occasionally drift off into like other territories whatever like interests me at that time and yeah i was on for talking about nephilim last time which was which mm-hmm. was really fun yeah because you have that uh you did a bunch of in your early days you did a bunch mm-hmm. of like debunking a lot of like literalist stuff in the bible because i think you have like a background in like evangelical stuff
stuff and you did a lot of stuff about like debunking creationism and all that kind of stuff in the early times when i first oh, yeah, found yeah. you back yeah. when now that i have learned that you were like 12 or something <laughs> back when i was a child yeah, yeah i still do that i still love um learning about like biblical history and how to understand like biblical text and mm. i'll try to go back in there the net like in those videos do really really well because they attract crazy people <laughs> who generally help with the <laughs> algorithm i guess mm -hmm. so yeah, you should go back to it. they're fun my most popular video is debunking the 9-11 truth movement and the video has basically has not stopped getting views in almost a year oh my god even with new releases it's almost exclusively like my most popular video all every month um <laughs> and it's just and it just leaves me with this constant barrage of the absolute most insane and very anti-semitic comments <laughs> oh um, goodness. and then not, uh, we're recording this this is coming out in october but uh we're recording this like three days after the 9 11 uh anniversary mm. when it turned 22 years old which also just like oh, oh my god I, I felt my bones creak at that one <laughs> but uh that day i had to like dedicate like almost like two hours to just fumigating my comment oh, section no. of just the most <laughs> horrific anti-semitic bullshit you'll ever see no good I like using fumigating like they're like bed bugs in your house yeah. oh my gosh <laughs> okay we're all youtubers here and i want to point out that the greatest feeling in the world uh-huh like the most like the, the feeling that like i get genuine joy doing this is when you see a comment by some sort of crank or asshole or somebody who's being a jerk who wrote paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs getting mad at you and just like uh, scott pilgrim you're like this looks really boring and just ban <laughs> them and that all that work never sees the light of day <laughs> oh yeah yeah like youtube's ability for like the creator to like delete comments they don't like is fantastic it's like i yeah. don't like this i'm deleting it because like on twitter or something like that you can like block or mute somebody but their comments are still there and it's like no I can delete your comments. Yeah. I also bye. like that you can delete the comment, but like they don't know and that and also mute them for all time. So they're just constantly commenting into the void with nobody hearing it. No one hearing it. Yeah. Chef's kiss. It's one of the brick. Just when I see stuff. a super long comment that you can tell they spent a lot of time writing and you just know that it's never going to see anybody. It's just like, ah, oh, love it. Um, I also <laughs> to, to start the podcast, I also wanted to talk about another thing that I thought was very amusing. And I feel like Trey as the combination of zoomer and archaeologist uh -huh. you might find this uh very amusing in a way and i feel like um we would all have some good stuff to weigh in so currently absorbing on tiktok the okay. app that the kids are using yeah the app that me as the oldest person of the three of us <laughs> uses probably the most but is for the kids or something i love Actually, TikTok. I have no idea. trey might be a tiktok uh tiktok i, I, I don't even have a tiktok there uh, you go see i am so I, old i love tiktok i love when people repost tiktoks to instagram reels so that i can see them because i don't go onto the tiktok app but i like the tiktoks themselves i just don't watch it on tiktok i like when people put their instagram reels on tiktok because i <laughs> the reverse. i don't know why but it feels like my brain is actually physically allergic to instagram i i have everybody everyone seems to love it and loves posting on it and loves looking at it but i have never gone on instagram and been like wow i want to keep being on this 
app. I so hate it. I hate everything about it. It's All so, right. I, I don't know. Anyways, um, so so what happened is this Facebook post went out uh-huh. a few months ago of this uh, woman who was just thinking like, who asked her boyfriend, I think. Uh, she sure. asked her boyfriend, hey, how often in a day do you think about the Roman Empire? And without missing a beat, he replied every day. And it has been followed up with women all over TikTok asking their male partners, hey, how often do you think about the Roman Empire and being shocked to find out that it's basically constant? That is awesome. Wow. That is like the funniest thing ever. The one I just saw before the show started is this woman who was married to a man for 16 years. They had never once talked about the Roman Empire. And then she decided to uh, based on this to ask. And he said, well, like no more than like once a week. And she's like, once a week? Like, it's like a, once a um, week for 16 years i never knew and like women are like i never i never anticipated that he would think this much about the roman empire so do we have to like sort of round robin like how how much do we each think about the roman empire because sure although we have to skew that trey is literally an archaeologist uh-huh. student or an archaeology it's, student so it's like every day every day <laughs> um, that makes sense oh no it's such a big part of history too it's like i don't know it's hard mm-hmm. to not talk about or think about the Roman Empire. That makes sense. How about you, Scott? Um, How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Never, never once in my life have I, <laughs> have I thought about the Roman Empire. Am I going to be the odd one out? Tristan, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I'm having a really hard time answering this question for really stupid reasons because like, I don't like, if I were to say like, how much do I think about like Caesar Augustus crossing and like the crossing of the Rubicon and like crap like that, which I know Caesar Augustus didn't cross the Rubicon. That was Caesar, but or Julius Caesar or whatever. But either way, that stuff I don't think about very much. But uh-huh. I very often think about how much like Rome is like super duper duper relevant for understanding history. So like I always yeah. I always mention things about like how why why does Russia do a lot of the shitty imperialist stuff it does? And it's because of this like long history of Russians considering themselves the inheritors of the Roman Empire and that they like literally the word czar comes from Caesar and like Kaiser comes from Caesar and like mm. those kinds of things, even the, like the American Capitol buildings are all designed around a Greco-Roman thing because America's whole experiment in republicanism was all meant to be like, hey, we're going to find a way to make the success of the Roman Republic work without having the descent into tyranny that led to the Roman Empire. And so like that's that's like there. That's like the stuff that is is there. That that is like the way that I think about that kind of stuff. But like, honestly, like I could not give two shits about like the Punic Wars or Caligula or Nero or the Vomitorium or Gladiatorium. (laughs) games or any of that kind of stuff like i the fun stuff though that's the fun <laughs> yeah. stuff i love i i know what you mean about like things having impact like all the medieval empire like kingdoms were like the successors to and saw themselves as the successors to the romans and then like christianity probably a big reason of why it's so popular and became dominant is like because the roman emperor converted to it and stuff like that is like yeah it makes these big impacts i don't know i like thinking about like alternate history stuff so like it's always fun to like think like okay how if things ended up a little bit differently i don't know like there's yeah. like one there's like there's like a handful of times where like there's one time where a roman emperor found jesus and it changed the entirety of human history like one dude decided to be like hey I, i'm into this jesus thing i'm gonna base my entire personality around it and it basically was the beginning of the end <laughs> of the roman empire and also changed the entirety of western 
Eastern history. Christianity would almost be like a Middle Eastern religion at that point if it wasn't for that, or right. Middle Eastern North African religion if it wasn't for one guy deciding that this is my whole personality now. Oh Although I think that I, th- I know that some some classicist is going to be like, well, you know, Constantine actually did that because it was a political decision because he was trying to dup 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 dup. Okay, I get it. What I'm hearing is you do think about the Roman Empire way more than I do, even even if it's not the whole thing. It's true. I find myself thinking, weirdly enough, for some reason, my Roman Empire seems to be like the USSR, mostly because I'm reading a World War II book right now. But I, I, for some reason, probably more than any healthy human should, think about Stalin and like like (laughs) the Soviet project a lot. Gosh. Well, speaking of Stalin, I feel like that's enough Stalin this episode. Oh, you see? This, po- this is a podcast called It's Probably Not Aliens, hey. a podcast where we talk about pseudo history, pseudo archaeology. 12 minutes. That's actually decent for us. That's not bad. Okay. Pseudo history, pseudo archaeology, UFO cranks, conspiracies, but we tend to buttress the show around ancient aliens. Yes. The more and more quotation marks around history <laughs> channel. History every single, um, take. Yes. Uh, my name's Scott. I know nothing about what no we're talking way. about today. That's different. That's my name. <laughs> my name is Scott. I know nothing. I don't even think about the Roman Empire that much, which makes <laughs> me feel like I should. Should I think about it more often? Should I think about Rome more. <laughs> I should Scott think more. about Rome more. Uh, message, uh, send a tweet to send an X yeah. to at Probs Not Aliens on X on to X.com. say whether or not Scott should think more about the Roman Empire. Yeah, let um, me know. Also, if you are a person with a male partner and you are not male yourself, you should ask them how much they think about the Roman Empire and report back with your findings. <laughs> <laughs> scientific. This is a scientific study. But who are you actually? Yeah. Uh, my name is Tristan Johnson. I do the research to make these episodes happen all the time. And I progressively drive myself insane because I have somehow decided to dedicate my life to debunking conspiracy theories and showing its connections to the basically general destruction of society. Luckily, the reason I asked for Trey to come on the show today is because Trey, I, when I was researching this, one of the first things I do is try to go on YouTube to find out what the cranks are saying about the thing. I looked up with Sudro Bune, uh, the, the topic of today's episode, and the number one result is Trey's video on the topic. Oh, that's awesome. Ooh. And it's also the only non-UFO video on the subject. Yes. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> it's, I, I made that like five years ago or something crazy like that. It's going to make me old. How, how old is the video? It's, it's been a while. Uh, and yeah, like I, I remember when I made it, I was like literally the only one on YouTube who was not talking about like makes, just nodding their head saying it's yes, it's a UFO. I was like, oh, actually, actually, to listen to the rest of this podcast yeah (laughs) but yeah oh good tease yeah so yeah that's what we're gonna talk about today so let's delve a little bit into what ancient aliens and ancient astronaut claims about what utsuro bune is and for the record everybody if you are a person who can correctly pronounce things in japanese um Sorry, that's all I can say. Yeah, uh, Japanese does not come easy to me. So here's the idea is that millions of people around the world believe Thank you. that there was a local fisherman in the province of Hitachi who spotted an unusual drifting craft on the water. And the craft was apparently in the shape of an incense burner. But if you look at a Japanese incense burner, it kind of looks like a flying saucer. Oh. The exterior of the craft had small metal plates on it that were similar to heat resistant tiles found on space. Space shuttles. Ooh. Oh. Space shuttles. Because they got to go t- through the atmosphere and that's hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which also reminds me that I didn't talk about this in the episode, but uh, metal plates that were like heat resistant tiles found on space shuttles. The heat resistant tiles on the space shuttles were not metal. They're like a ceramic thing. <laughs> 
Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> like, the, like literally the bottom of the shuttle is this like ceramic, like high space age material that can handle like extreme friction heat. Yeah. I might remember because I was personally traumatized by this event when I was a child, but like Ooh. about five months after 9-11. So Tristan was like, I want to say like 13 years old. What happened was, is one of the shuttles took off and scraped against one of the struts holding it onto the, to the fuel tank and knocked off just a few of these tiles. Then uh. on re-entry, the, um, the, that led to a cascade effect. And basically over the Texas sky, the shuttle blew into a billion pieces, just showing how dangerous oh space actually is. Yeah. Like that happened like, like less than six months after 9-11. And so I remember on. like, that was still the time when everybody was still glued to watching 24-hour TV. So I remember everyone was like obsessed with this thing. It's like the, the only the second shuttle to have like ever gone down, but it was a huge thing. Yeah. And I was 13, so obviously I watched the news constantly because I'm normal. Yep. I'm a normal insane <laughs> That's person. That's what a normal 13-year-old does. <laughs> All that is to say is that the um, the tiles are like a ceramic or something like that. They are not like metal. <laughs> gotcha. It's a lot of like the rest Star of the ship Wars. is metal. Like it's made out of like titanium and stuff. But like the stuff that's actually designed to be heat resistant to the atmosphere is like ceramic. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're talking about a story now. In this uh, floating like a uh, like, uh, UFO thing in the water, uh -huh. inside was... A young woman dressed in unfamiliar clothing and speaking oh. a language that nobody could understand. As we know, space is full of human women. Yes. That's what Eric Von Daniken always says. He was his whole thing was like, once we land on a planet, we are going to find the women and we are going to have alien babies with them. I am literally mid listening to the episode that you did behind my back while I was at VidCon, <laughs> where you guys get extremely unhinged talking about that book. <laughs> he was so obsessed with this idea of like, when we find aliens, we are going to have sex with them. Like, guys, that's just what's going to happen. I base my entire idea of life in the universe on what Captain Kirk would do. <laughs> That's like way more true than, than people realize, though, about Eric Von Denik. Yeah, because yeah. just like we found out in like, you know, Chariots of the Gods, he straight up plagiarized H.P. Lovecraft. So like, yeah, <laughs> yeah fiction was like his primary source of, of inspiration. Anyways, inside the craft, they found these strange writings and hieroglyphics that nobody could understand. And over three different Japanese texts, we get this story of Itsuro Bune is the nickname for this, uh, this, this story. Modern historians, according to ancient aliens, modern historians struggle to understand what it means. It also suggests that Itsuro Bune would mark that extraterrestrials did visit Japan in the ancient past and oh. connect it with other incidents of mysterious figures showing up in Japanese, you know, mythological history and doing weird and supernatural things and then disappearing. And maybe this is just another part of that story. Okay. So that's, that's the general, that's what millions around the people millions of people around the world believe <laughs> yeah so it's clearly aliens yeah it's clearly aliens it's surabune alien confirmed confirmed do you think i uh, i did that well enough trey yeah yeah i think you got it like um most of the details about i guess like so i watched a little clip of an ancient aliens episode i don't know if it's the same one as this where it gave the itsurabune like story and their version of it it was it was not good because <laughs> like, so like they give the narration and i like, watched it and they straight like the editor at least 
straight up lies like where they have like the hollow ship like when they say like it leaves they have it like fly off into space and then like oh yeah <laughs> and stuff and like gas comes out and i'm like that just straight up didn't happen in this original yeah. story <laughs> He was just making shit up, but <laughs> somebody's lying. <laughs> yeah, Tsurabune, though, is um, definitely a I wouldn't say it's a fixture. You have to be pretty deep in UFO lore to get to Utsurabune. Yeah, but it is definitely like if you are into UFOs, Utsurabune is a story that comes up of like, hey, this looks all like a flying saucer and like all that kind of stuff. And maybe this is an example of that, especially because we talked about as UFO people have tried to make because Trey, I, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the UFO people have struggled because there's this interesting correlation between the rise of sightings of UFOs and flying saucers and basically the widespread popularity of science fiction on television. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of these projects are trying to uh, show that there's obviously more to it and it's not just that science fiction influenced people and people saw things in the sky and made those connections erroneously, but that it's actually like part of a deeper thing. And Mm. ancient aliens in the History Channel and a lot of UFO people in general uh, will rely on the fact that their primarily conservative right wing and American fan base don't know Japanese, don't know the subtleties of Japanese culture or folklore and won't do a whole lot of research learning an entire new language in order to understand a story in context. So. That doesn't they won't sound look like up them. the date of the story. <laughs> <laughs> they won't look up the date of the story and realize it's not ancient and is in 1803. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get it. We'll get into this. But um, so so here's like here's a, now we're gonna go into like the actual legend about how it's written. Okay, uh-huh. yeah, pl- yes, please. <laughs> how it's written, like how it's actually like the actual story of yeah, yeah. Tsurubune. So on February 22nd, 1803, fishermen on the coast of Harayadori in Hitachi saw a strange vessel drifting in the sea, and they towed it to land and found that it was about 3.3 meters high and about 5.45 meters wide. Okay. I did not do the imperial conversion. That's fine. Meters? I just, in my head, they're like, they're so close to yards that I can, I can sort of figure that out myself in my head. It's roughly three. So it's about four feet tall and about like, uh, five, 10, 15. That can't be right. 17 feet wide. Okay. Mm. Four feet tall. That doesn't make sense from 3.3 meters. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Nine, nine, 10 feet tall. 3.3. Right. Yeah. And it was the way that they described it was that it looked like a kohako, which is a Japanese incense burner. Cool. Now, if you've ever seen a kohako, if you were to imagine, if you had seen a UFO before, you would kind of imagine it as a UFO shape. It does kind of have that disc shape. The way that it works is you, you put it on the table like that and you put sticks of incense in the top and light them. So, yeah, I've also heard it said described. There's one of the stories says it's like a uh, rice basket. Yeah, there's another good case. Yeah. So the Ooh. upper part of the vessel, instead of being made of apparently like, you know, atmospheric reentry tiles or whatever, actually seem to uh, in the description seem to be made from red lacquered rosewood and the lower part mm. covered in metal plates and that the vessel had windows made of glass or crystal that had been covered with bars and sealed with some kind of tree resin, you know, not stuff that would be unfamiliar to Japanese people especially yeah. because Japan is a series of islands and has a very big maritime culture. So it's like a big, yeah, yeah. it's a big deal. They, they go into big detail about the boat's craft and construct because their culture at this time, anyway, put a lot of emphasis on boats and stuff. Yeah. Inside, they did find that there's text written in an unknown language. Oh. And inside they find other alien artifacts like bedsheets, a bottle filled with 3.6 liters of water. Okay. And some cake. Ooh. Oh, and meat. So food. And meat. We got 
some meat, Needed some meat, cake. As, as the described. All right. Alien also, cows. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, well, they, we know that we know from previous episodes, aliens love abducting cows. Uh, yeah. So I would love to see, and I'm sure someone has made this like some sort of like skit where the aliens are convinced that cows, because they're more numerous, are like the dominant species on the planet, and that they're like <laughs> they're going to war against the cows, trying yeah. to trying to conquer the planet. We are the the cows' servants because we're taking care of them and everything like that. So yeah, like, the humans are not important. It's the cows we got to figure out what's what's their the cows deal. have a culture of humiliation. They make the humans drink their milk. Yep. Um, <laughs> as if they are children, They're like our hive mind, the cows are like the queen and we're like the worker ants all around. Yeah. Them. yeah, yeah, exactly. Inside the vessel, they find a woman between the ages of 18 and 20 who has red hair and elongated eyebrows with artificial white extensions. Now, okay. I will mention that, like, if you were to see this from like a Japanese cultural perspective, a woman with red hair is like seen to be like, oh, that's weird and exotic. Right. Uh huh. She also had skin that was a very pale pink color. So, you know, like basically a white person and had long, smooth clothes of an unknown fabric and spoke an unknown language that the fishermen did not seem to understand. Now, at this point, I think it's important to point out that like one of the things that the ancient aliens people would be like, well, who, what could this possibly be? Because the Japanese wouldn't have known what a European person looks like. And I'll mention that Japan first had its contact with Europeans in the year 1545. And also at this point, the West was actively in pursuit of colonizing China. China. So Japan did have, yeah, a, like did know about Westerners. In fact, the end of the Sengoku Dai period, this was like a big civil war that happened in Japan. Literally, there was like a big war where like they had all their like samurai warriors and stuff, but they got eventually the Oda clan took over the country because they were like, huh, interesting katanas you've got there. We found some guys who gave us guns. <laughs> is that something ancient alien says is that it can't be like a, a, a Western lady or or European lady? Well, they don't. They kind of um, ancient aliens, I don't think, talks into it. But that is like they don't explain why that like this mysterious woman could not just be a European and they have to go to alien. That's weird because that's something that's brought up actually in the original story that like the Bakken, like the author is like, oh, it's a probably a British or American princess. Yeah, yeah something that's like, his, like that. That's his theory. He, he mentions that in the story. Because again, as we've talked about, this is not ancient history this happened in 1803 right (laughs) so yeah it's so weird the other thing that she had on her was something called a quadratic box Uh, and that this box was made of a pale material about 600 centimeters wide or about two feet wide and would not let anybody touch the box despite multiple requests. Don't touch it. It's my special box. The man from the village theorized that this could be a foreign princess who had an affair and was set adrift as a punishment and that the quadratic box might hold the head of the deceased lover. But eventually, uh, not giving in to the mysteries, the townspeople decided to return the woman and the vessel to the sea and let her drift away. And that is a key part remembering like that kind of aspect of the story because that's basically like the moral of the story that, that ancient aliens very interestingly doesn't talk a whole lot about no yeah. they want to treat it like it's a real yeah so they got they have her fly away in a spaceship yeah. <laughs> <Have> her fly <laughs> away instead of dumped in the ocean with like trash yeah <laughs> so i want to give you guys a little bit of context about this please do there are four different versions of the Otsurabune story that exist in the oshuku zaki which came out in 1815 the toen shosetsu which came out in 1825 the hiyoryu kishu which came out in 1835 and the umenochiri which came 
came out in 1844. And first, let's talk about like a couple things. One, mysterious women. Mystery and mysterious women are yeah. often figures that show up in uh, Japanese folklore. A mysterious woman showing up out of nowhere who has supernatural abilities or origins come up all the time because mystery and mysterious things that the mortal world don't understand is a big part of Shinto spirituality. Yeah. And uh, Utsuro Une being like, oh, this mysterious woman who came in from the ocean it fits very well into this like model of Japanese folk story. Women, man. <laughs> what are they about? What do they want? It's a mystery. <laughs> we'll never know. The other thing that is important to mention is that she's carrying a quadratic box and quadratic boxes. Yeah, what is that? They have they have a specific significance in Japanese culture. So a quadratic box is basically like I think it's just like a perfectly square box. Cool. The way that it's been translated, quadratic box means something. <laughs> so that is like that's like a big part. So the thing is, though, that like a box like that, a square box like that, like a, a cube, square box, right? A nice cubed box. Yeah. The concept of a mysterious, untouchable object could be likened to the fact that those sort of shapes of boxes can also be used in Japanese culture for holding sacred or cursed items in various myths and legends in Japanese history. Ah. Usually these boxes hold significant power or secrets that are not meant to be tampered with. That's another big part of Japanese folklore is that don't touch it again with mysteries, secrets and mysteries that mortal people are not supposed to be messing with. What's in the box? I'll never tell. If you're a fan of Japanese horror, you'll know uh, a lot of the, the sort of presage of the things that set off a uh, Japanese like horror story is usually messing with something that you don't understand that don't you should not it. be messing with. Don't touch uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. So so that that is um, this is another part where like the quadratic box has significance in the story. Mm. There's another example of what we could talk about with the quadratic box is a guy who by the name of Urashima Taro, who is the protagonist of a Japanese fairy tale called Otogi Banashi. Mm -hmm. He's a fisherman who's rewarded for rescuing a turtle cool. and carried on its back to the dragon palace beneath the sea. There he's entertained by the princess Otohime as a reward. He spends what he believes to be several days with the princess, but when he returns to his home village, he discovers that he has been gone for at least a hundred years. Whoa. Remember, I talked about this in an episode before because this is one of the first time travel narratives I ever made. I remember this. Um, yes. Yeah. Time travel forward. Yeah. But what happens is that he's given a forbidden jeweled box called a Tama Tobacco. They said you must never open it. Uh, and so he kind of like the story is about him going around and exploring the world of 100 years in the future. Eventually, though, he does open it. And basically the 100 years of time passes immediately and he turns oh. into an old man just withers away into dust. This is like a very common like fairy tale model in Japanese culture. You might remember a certain version of it as somebody else who got transported 100 years in the future and has uh, has to see the state of the world around him in a little story called The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Got transported 100 years into the future. Mm -hmm. And if you like look at the art style, like especially like those robots in Breath of the Wild, you'll sure. see like a lot of like obviously Nintendo and Zelda is all made in Japan. Yeah, but there's in the Zelda series, there is a lot of homage to Japanese fairy tales and especially things like, yeah, even the robots or guardians or whatever they're called have like inspiration in like really old Japanese uh, sort of pottery and arts that comes out. I know because we're probably gonna have to do an episode about this later because ancient astronaut people have looked at those and also assumed that those are spacesuits. So <laughs> there you go. They did another version of that in Tears of the Kingdom, where this time it was 
Zelda who was in the past and had to find a way to travel to the future. But that this one was more sad mm. and heartbreaking. And I won't spoil it for anyone, but it was it's cool and sad and it made me cry. I'll get to play it sometime. Right now, I am so deep into Baldur's Gate. And also, I have a very hard time playing console games. Like, it just, mm. like, I, I spent so much of my life never having a console. Yeah. That, like, the concept of, like, hey, I'm going to go play a video game to me is, like, I'm going to go to the computer. It's not going to be, I'm going to go pick up the, the thingy and play the thingy. Fair so, enough. like, my wife got a Switch in 2017. Mm. The last console that I had before that was a PlayStation 2. I um, hear you. The other aspect of this story in context that's super important is the ship. Mm-hmm. Hollow ships like that, actually boats and ships in general, have a significant symbolism in Japanese folklore, often as vessels for spirits meant to travel between worlds. Oftentimes, Ooh. the ocean is referred to in sort of, if, if you want like a sort of more Western comparison, kind of like the Grey Havens in uh, and the sort of... um in the Lord of the Rings and like the wet Middle Earth mythos, where like when it is the symbolic version of dying, especially like immortal things dying in Middle Earth is going to the Grey Havens, which is traveling to the West and going on a boat that sails off into the metaphorical sunset. So like the ocean and these kind of boats have this symbol in Japanese folklore that are about this connection between the world of the living and the world of the spirits. We get some serious Princess Mononoke vibes and stuff like that, because it's all based on the same mythological, spiritual sort of um, milieu. It's interesting when you look into the context of the culture that you're talking about, you uncover a lot more stuff that's uh, maybe more relevant than just saying it's aliens, I think. Mm-hmm. Another oh, thing yeah. too, like like this, this shows up in Western canon even more often because I can think about like how often the idea of like the process of dying and going to the afterlife involves getting on a boat and, you know, giving Charon money to oh, yeah. ride the sticks into the underworld type stuff. That's true. But yeah, so the ship has that significance as well. The other part that's a big part of this fairy tale that's kind of its like moral lesson is the returning of the woman to the sea. Uh, Various Japanese myths are about mortal people having an encounter with supernatural beings, fairly often uh, beings that are called yokai, Uh which in Japanese, uh, specifically Shinto spirituality, are like spirits, Uh uh, various types of spirits. And in Shinto like myth, uh, yokai can be of everything. Like they can be the spirit of the mountain. They can be the spirit of the forest. They can be, you know, fox, like kitsune spirits. And like, although kitsune is just the word for fox, but like there's this whole idea that kitsune are all kind of semi-spiritual creatures yeah and again to give our primarily american audience a little bit of like a comparison think about like studio ghibli stuff with like um the big one that comes to me is spirited away where they of where course the main character crosses over into the world of the yokai and like there's different spirits for all sorts of different things and they mm. all have different looks and all that kind of stuff yeah how am i doing trey oh no i think it's good there's another interesting thing where there's a legend in japanese folklore that is much older that dates to the seventh century AD um, and it's uh-huh. the origin story of the Kono clan and it's like eerily similar to this story even though it's older where yeah. a fisherman finds a 13 year old girl in a hollow ship drifting in the ocean and she's the daughter of a Chinese emperor who fled to escape her stepmother and she married a Japanese prince and founded like the Kono clan so like there's aspects of it that are kind of similar to this like older story um, because mm-hmm. an important part of the Itsurabune is that like she might be like a princess from a foreign land that's like uh, I don't know immigrated into into Japan and mm-hmm. like I guess the Itsurabune story is like almost like a parody of like this older one where instead of like taking the girl in they they cast her out back into the ocean yeah uh, 
and it, a big part of the story is that like the Japanese writers of that time, like like Akin is one of the writers, the one in 1825. He like explicitly states that like this is a woman from like the West. Like this is uh -huh. something that he states where he thinks that like she's either a British, Bengali, or American princess. And the the symbols, like he writes that the symbols that were carved into the the ship, um, the ancient aliens calls like hieroglyphics. He says I found that similar characters on a British ship that recently arrived off sure in japan like they're oh. similar to that so that's why he thinks like, and it's funny if you see like uh japanese art that depicts like matthew perry's american ships um mm -hmm. this was later this was a couple decades later but if you see the art the symbols which are probably like they're probably english symbols but how like the japanese artist depicted it is almost like identical to how like the authors depicted the it's Rabune symbols yeah. it's very very clear that it's not about aliens it's about like westerners yeah because like because it, it's also speaking to the whole story because the 19th century in japan the, the big trend that is happening is that more and more westerners are starting to show up in the region they're starting to plant down more things like they're they're starting to you know like call, like actively colonize like the french are starting to colonize Indochina, the British are are messing around with China and like um like like obviously the huge British Indian colony, but like Japan, because like one of the things about Japan is that as an island nation, it has enjoyed a whole lot of uh independence. There are several like you know major legends about how like the ocean protects them from foreign invaders, but Japan is not isolated from the world. They have obviously like the the, the ocean to protect them, but yeah. they are increasingly like because the Europeans are in other parts, they're showing up in Japan, they're trading, they're, you know, getting more involved. And we'll see that this starts to become more and more of a big deal as Japan essentially to try and bulwark itself against European incursion, start to go through a period where they try to become basically European themselves. Uh, and they go through this period of like rapid industrialization and centralization of the government called the Meiji period, which um, basically culminates in World War II. So that, that that's that's a whole different story. Though. There, oh, there's also like a, a weird little thing like you know the description about the woman having like white extensions to her hair yeah to like her red hair it, it's funny that matches a japanese explorer's description of like russian women um at that oh. time so it was like a story that like a, a japanese explorer brought back to japan and was saying that russian women did that to their hair like they extended it with with white powder or something like that they turned it it had white tips or something like that oh, that's interesting Frosted tips frosted tips Just open up the boat and there's like guy fieri sitting there with the stuff yeah <laughs> welcome to flavor country we were to flavor town sorry <laughs> flavor kingdom <laughs> he's expanding there's, um, some sort of american uh, prince he comes from a, he comes from a he comes from a kingdom called flavor town <laughs> A huge part of the story is the fact that it takes place in Tokugawa, Japan, too, where the borders were closed. So there was very limited contact between like West and, and Japan. Like they obviously knew about it, but like it, it, you have to report if like the border was broken and stuff. And that's why like uh, when Bakken brings up like the British ships, like that's a illegal crossing of the border that mm. was like published and like the government had to crack down on it um, mm. so yes there's a lot of like context in the story that yeah i don't know the ancient aliens like leaves out and stuff a lot of times people leave out of it like that there's pre-existing legends and that it's obviously about like foreigners like not mm. i don't know it's very weird mm -hmm. japan has also a very like complex relationship when it comes to like its relationship with people from the outside but you're right there's like this cool it's this interesting like mix folkloric mix of like 
Shinto fairy tale type tropes, but also talking about like stuff that's geopolitically going on at the time and kind of concerns and anxieties that are exist in Japan at the time. So it, it kind of all fits together. Yeah. And if you understand it that way, the story makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And, and the thing about the story is that it kind of doesn't make any sense because each one of the, the different versions are contradictory to each other in some way. Um, mm-hmm. Like I one has the date is February 22nd. Another one has is March 22nd. 24. There's different names for the beaches in each one of the stories and then different overlords for the province, which are weird. And if you take the huh. time to look, um, this wasn't me. This was a really, really good author of a, a skeptical inquiry article. But he took the time to look for these beaches on like ar- archaic Japanese maps and stuff. And then mm. um, went back to see like, OK, who was the overlord of this kingdom or this province, which one of them was like Ugusara Izumi or something like that. And if you actually take the time to actually parse out the story and like double check all the factoids in it like the beach doesn't appear on any maps um and then the overlord who they named all his territories are inland they don't have a beach oh. so there's no way for there to have been a beach for anybody to land on so like there's obviously like, oh my gosh the japanese version of ohio yeah it's like <laughs> it's somebody landlocked. made it up like the, i think yeah. it's pretty certain that somebody made up the story but was smart enough to like make sure that like certain details were like at least somewhat believable but like, yeah take a little deep look into it yeah mm-hmm. So, oh no, there's Gosh. another aspect of it too where, like, did the story even happen? Yeah. Thing. We'll delve into that. Um, so, like, uh, so another part that, like, kind of makes us fit into Japanese fairy tales is also the act of returning the woman to the sea is reminiscent of several Japanese myths because the idea is that a lot of these stories, these encounters with supernatural creatures, ends with them returning the creature to the place where it belongs and sort of setting right the natural order of things. You know, yeah. things like the end of. I don't know, the end of uh, Princess Mononoke or something like that, right? Sure. Putting the the thing that was taken erroneously back to where yeah. it belongs. Put it back. Give it if back. I correctly, there's actually in that movie, there is like a part of a yokai being kept in a box. In a box. Yeah. Yeah. And that needs to be returned. Yeah. And like, that's like the big turning point in the movie. Yep. So the other part, too, is that um, like Japanese folktales often serve as cautionary tales or moral lessons. And in this one, I think the idea is that like, like there's a, there's a big part in like Japanese mythology of like, don't fuck with things that you don't understand. Yeah. Which I really wish politics streamers would enjoy, which um, <laughs> would, would, would do. <laughs> We haven't fucked around with politics debate streamers yet, so I'm going to I'm going to put my stick there and be like, yeah, maybe don't debate a topic in front of thousands of people. If you're going to be live streaming yourself, reading the Wikipedia article on the topic (laughs) in like the minutes before you're about to go live with it. Maybe it means that you haven't read enough to talk about that subject. (laughs) Um, Is could the moral of this tale be when you see a woman just like let her do her thing? Don't 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 interfere. Just let a woman do her thing. Just like let her go. Let her do her thing. Yeah. So that's a lot of fun context. But I want to get to some juicy debunking, Tristan. I want to get to some juicy debunking of this story. Can we do that? Well, first, uh, we need to uh, make some money. We need so to make some money. Yeah, we need to make some money. So first, a little message from our sponsor, us. All right. Um, 
Are you ready for more debunking? I want to get to some debunking. I want to I want to dunk on on this on on ancient aliens. Hit me with All it. All right. So let's first do the context of the creation of this story. Uh, as Trey mentioned, there's four different copies of where this thing is. Each have their own interpretation and contradictory uh, like stories. Being the Oshushuzaki, which is translated as miscellaneous notes from the Nightingale Inn, uh, which came out in cool. 1815. Toen Shosetsu, which is translated as Tales from the Rabbit Garden, which was compiled in 1825 by Kyokute Bakin uh, and is currently undisputed at the uh, Mukyukai Toshokan in uh, Machida in the Tokyo prefecture. The Horyo Kishu, uh, which is Diaries and Stories of Castaways, which came cool. out in 1835, has an unknown author and is today at display in the library of the Tenri University in Tenri Siri and Nara prefecture. And Ume no Chiri, uh, Dust of the Plum, which came out in 1844. Dust of the Plum. Nakahashi uh, Matajiro and is today on display in the Iwasi Bunko Toshokan, uh, which is a private library in Nara City. You did so good just then with all those pronunciations. I beg to differ. Um, <laughs> so first, let's talk about the language barrier. They're saying that like, you know, oh, it's unidentifiable hieroglyphics, but it could also mean that it is stuff from another country rather than another planet. As Trey pointed out, that it was almost yeah. definitely yeah. a reference to the sort of inscrutability of, you know, European alphabets and just like not knowing what the language is, because one of the reasons why I think it looks so alien and weird to the primarily American conservative Western audience of like ancient aliens is because it is a non-Western culture that does not have Western cultural context, which is hard to come by in our day and age because of how uh, much we love to export our culture and society to other people, whether they like it or not. This is like one of those like interesting, rare glimpses of seeing Western society through a lens of people mm. who don't have the context of understanding the culture. And you can kind of see like parts of it and how to a lot of these people, we would look very, we would come off as very alien. We would be very alien as their first encounter. Yeah, so you can imagine this Ooh, yeah. generating from a story of like some sort of like, you know, dinghy that got marooned and wound up in some like really remote fishing village for with a bunch of people who had never seen a Westerner before. And it like blew their minds because they're like this alien basically wandered on shore. We joked about it, but ima literally imagine that we just threw Guy Fieri out into a place that didn't understand <laughs> Guy Fieri. And it was just like, <laughs> That's just try to make Nobody sense of Guy this Fieri. person. Yeah, <laughs> we barely do. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, too, as I mentioned, that the boat and the woman's appearance are described in terms that are familiar to the Japanese of that era and likening the boat shape to a Japanese incense burner. So like there's like a like as I just did previously, there's a whole like cultural understanding of the story that makes a lot more sense. if You know, the geopolitical, but also the folkloric and mythological uh, concept of Japanese society, especially in the 1800s. Mm. And also history, not that, that ancient aliens people would buy into this, but the very overwhelming consensus among among historians and ethnologists is that this is a piece of Japanese folklore and not factual yeah. in many ways. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, that's what the ex the, the <laughs> mainstream experts say. Yeah. And the UFologists are basing their entire claim off of basically not that this is a much of a surprise, but speculative interpretation and conjecture and, and in flagrant violation of uh, of Occam's razor. Doesn't sound like them. That doesn't sound like a thing they would do. Yeah. Also, as you actually pointed out in your video, Trey, the image of the flying saucer has been prevalent in American pop culture since the 30s. And this cultural background might influence the way that we interpret historical events like Kutsurabune, leading people to associate them with extraterrestrial visitations, which means that like, hey, again, we've kind of covered this on the show before, but like a culture that doesn't 
doesn't know what a UFO is and sees something vaguely UFO shaped would not make that connection in a way. Like it's kind of like how um, in Kimbaya with the Kimbaya artifacts, there's like yeah. this depiction of a fish that they say looks like an airplane. And it's like, well, if you've never seen an airplane before, you could make a fish in a, like an abstract sense that if you were to show it to a modern person, right. they would more associate it with an airplane than a fish. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It only looks like an airplane because we know what an airplane is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other part that I think is a big deal that I think that Trey, as a person with an archaeology background, could speak a lot more is that if you take literally anything and remove it from its context and try to look at it with a, a lens that isn't trained, what? you are going to learn literally nothing about it. This is 100% true. <laughs> Oh, gosh. This is ancient aliens in general. That's what they do. That's what they do with everything, unfortunately. It's true. (laughs) Another good example would be all of the medieval and Renaissance paintings that we uh, we talked about in previous episodes that try to depict UFOs were just not understanding the historical context of the things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are they clouds or are they spaceships? Well, Mm -hmm. one of them seems a little bit more likely. And of course, that would be spaceships. They're obviously spaceships. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that um, the sources of all of these are all folktale writers and novelists. This is we're kind of looking at like uh, going back to our newsprint or engraving episode that these people basically functioned in Japanese society at the time, like tabloid news writers or tabloid Mm. stories where they took stories maybe that were true or maybe weren't and embellished them with like supernatural aspects in order to uh, get more popularity and sell more books. Yeah. Which means that the original source and the reliability of the account are already in question because the kind of people that were writing about them were not people who were overly interested in telling factual stories. <laughs> Either they were writing fiction or they were telling tall tales, essentially. Yeah, I mean, if especially mm. if it was if it was a way to get a moral across, you know, like mm-hmm. you would embellish stuff and you would create details that would help deliver the, the moral that you wanted to tell. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just means that it's not necessarily an account of, of people who are trying to be as accurate as possible, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But just don't. Yeah. You know, don't don't count on that to be historically accurate. Yeah. To sort of sort around this out, I then looked at like what most experts who have studied this story have to say about it and what their interpretation of what it is actually is. And I came Mm -hmm. up with a handful. Uh, The first is that some historians believe that this story was a distorted account of a real event. You know, like the kind of idea of like somebody got shipwrecked and marooned or something like that. And their dinghy wandered into a remote fishing village where the people who had never seen a Westerner before, like freaked out because like, like to them, it was an alien. Yeah. And then, of course, the story could have been embellished and mythologized with a bunch of stuff that it comes from Japanese fairy tales and folklore attached to it until it became what we see today. Other ideas that it might be allegorical, representing themes like the increasingly fragile isolation that Japan was enjoying at the time, the fear of the unknown and societal change that were happening as a result of more and more Europeans. And as the world is like 1800s, you're starting to see this is very early on, but we're we're starting to see a more globalized international trade network and like the Europeans and and non-Japanese people coming and interfering more in society and foreign influence becoming a bigger thing. And Japan had a very difficult time managing that. As you mentioned, that the beaches that were referred to were specifically ones that had been cut off from foreign trade, which the emperor of Japan would have like actively done as a measure to sort of limit foreign influence over the country. Another theory about it is that the mysterious box could also kind of give some more talk about that because the mysterious box the usually box? has ominous connotations, which means that like it could be that like this is 
like it's it's playing with the idea that this is taboo or it's forbidden or like that you are that like by our, us being more connected we are starting to mess with the natural order and because again japan is going through a very tumultuous time in its history yeah. at this point the other part is that it could mm. be part of uh, a long story of people at sea making up weird fucking stories you know mermaids <laughs> ghost ships yeah uh, mermaids being the very fun story of a bunch of people who went to florida and had to uh-huh. uh, make an excuse for why they had sex with a manatee and instead invented mermaids <laughs> it's a lady what can i say <laughs> as far as i remember it was a lady i wish that was a joke but that is a that is a very reasonable theory about why we have mermaids is that people wrote about them having sex with manatees and decided to reinterpret it as mermaids oh no that's oh my no god <laughs> that's no good Oh, because apparently manatees. Uh, you know what? I don't. I don't think we need to go into that. Manatees but, uh, got it going on. You can say it. You can say it. They got curves in all the right places. You can say it. Be brave, Tristan. They have fairly compatible organs, is what I would say. Okay, interesting. Oh my god, that's. I don't want. I don't know. Ever if see I a wanna... manatee's toenails? Oh my, no, have I don't toenails? think I want to. They look oh. like elephant toenails. They look like, oh. if you look them up, they're on their little front flippers. They look like elephant toenails. Oh, they're close gosh. It's crazy. Ah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> We're learning a lot um, today. Oh. Yeah. There's also like a psychological or sociological way to look at it. Some theories think that it might have been created to cope with the phenomenon that were not understood at the time. Things like cultural differences or mental sure. illness. Yeah. Guy Fieri. That this could be uh, some sort of political or diplomatic work. There's one theory that posits that um, the story is a distorted account of a political or diplomatic incident, perhaps involving a foreign dignitary or a ship from another country, and that the story might have been tweaked and altered in order to protect identities or to serve as propaganda for the the empire at the time. Then there's also the fact that it could be multiple different stories being kitbashed together, which often happens in folklore stories. Tsurabune could be a fusion of multiple legends or accounts, both real and imaginary and put them all into one narrative that sort of evolves over time. This happens a lot in folklore. Sure. As we've seen from multiple accounts, we know that the story was like, because we have multiple conflicting accounts, that's usually a sign that there was multiple versions of the story floating around in the oral tradition before it was committed to to writing. Writing it down. Mm. Usually. I don't know. We have an actual archaeologist here, so I'm feeling kind of intimidated when I make these kind of declarative statements. (laughs) No, no, no. Don't don't feel intimidated. Uh, I'm I'm an archaeologist of, of of three dig sites, so... Not that okay. I'm not that experienced, but you've taken actual archaeology classes when I took only history classes because my school did oh, not even have an archaeology department. Damn. Oh, you're doing good. No, you're doing great. I, I, I see no problems. You're awesome. Excellent. Awesome. And then, of course, the other theories show that there's a distinct possibility that the story has religious or spiritual basis to it, representing divine visitation or a test of virtue for the fishermen in the community, which is, of course, a common aspect of Japanese fairy tales. And even though it's it's you know, it's a modern, from their perspective, modern story of the same thing, that it has a lot of the aspects of ancient Japanese fairy tales that were kind of being cautionary or tests of yeah. virtue or things like that. So it could be trying to modernize those kinds of stories with a more modern context from their perspective, like modern as in 19th century context. Sure. And, and like I said, Japanese folklore has a rich tradition of having mysteries and beings that have supernatural abilities that we don't understand being a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we should, you know, 
scrutinize sources and not take historical accounts at face value and maybe like do a little bit more work than that. I know Ancient Aliens likes to take things that are basically folklore and take it at face value and say that it's real. Maybe that's not the best way of doing it and employ maybe just a tiny maybe. bit of critical thinking to these things. Maybe. Tristan, Tristan, you're asking Ancient Aliens to do like the bare minimum of history of a, a show on the History Channel to do the bare minimum of looking at history because yeah. that's the whole no. point of history is to look at these things. I, I read an article a little while back that talked about how a lot of ancient aliens segments on a certain subject can be instantly traced back to like the top two results on Google for that topic. Oh my God. So uh, of course, no episode of It's Probably Not Aliens would be complete without me making you sad somehow. Do it. I think that an important part to talk about with this in the context of ancient aliens, ancient astronaut theorists talking about this, I kind of I kind of alluded to it when I talked about how ancient aliens is viewer base is a predominantly conservative Western sort of group. You know, a lot of these have connections to the weird far right. But we're not going to talk about that today. The big thing that I could talk about is that talking about Itsuda Ibune being an extraterrestrial event is basically cultural appropriation. It's exploitation and misunderstanding of real cultural heritage, mm-hmm. uh, reframing it as an alien encounter, which completely ignores that Japan has a rich tapestry of folklore and history that just gets reduced to a mere footnote in this speculative, as, as we as we explained, Trey's video is the only non-UFO interpretation of this story on YouTube, or at least the only big one. I'm sure there's more because there's infinite videos on YouTube. But sure, the fact that like this part of Japanese folklore that has history, tradition, myth, legend, history, yeah, has get is reduced to aliens. Yeah. And the story is deeply embedded in one culture. Take it out of context to serve a different agenda, which is basically that could be the title of Ancient Aliens. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. No, whatever you have to talk about Ancient Aliens, you have to like, it's like literally you have to say that over and over and over again. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Lastly, when we allow for such theories to dominate discourse, we lose the nuance and complexity that comes with cultural stories and histories. The Itsurubune story is part part of Japanese folklore and can teach us much about the people and the times in which it was created. We already learned a whole lot about Japan today. Oh my just gosh, from this yeah. one story. Uh, reducing it to alien encounter kind of robs us of the opportunity to understand and appreciate it in its full context. For example, if you were interested in Japanese folklore and you found about the story and then you tried to look up stuff to learn more about it in its context, instead, you're going to have to sift through a giant pile of UFO <sighs> people trying to yeah. uh, <sighs> willfully misunderstand Japanese culture in order to make the claim that it is intelligent aliens that somehow came from light years away and managed to land on Earth with at, at, at superluminal speeds without, of course, destroying half the planet in the process. And the first thing they decided to do was show up in some random tiny village in Japan floating on the water. But like, isn't that <laughs> and I know the answer is like, obviously, no, considering the state of things. But like, isn't that boring, though, to just like s- s- to boil everything? everything down to I bet it was aliens rather than like what about this what about learning about like the cool nuance and context about the cultures and and the time period and things like that just to take everything and be like but it was probably aliens though and I know that I guess to some people that's not boring that's interesting to be like oh but how does this alien encounter connect to these other ones from around the world that we definitely also believe in (laughs) but like to me it's like I don't know that's it's so boring to just take every interesting thing and be like aliens 
It was aliens. It speaks to a sort of colonial nature as well. Trey could probably speak to this too as someone who has been in, and I imagine this is similar in archaeology as it is in history. But I found with my colleagues, especially in undergrad, but because we in grad school, everyone just becomes very specially interested in one very narrow topic. But I found in history when I was an undergrad, mm. I was shocked by how many people were really into history, really into understanding the past, but had a genuine, huge disinterest in anything that was outside of uh, essentially Europe and North America. Like they just did not care. It was not a th- like oh, it was yeah. not a thing that interested them at all. That's a huge problem. How often do those people think about the Roman Empire? A lot. That, yeah. Those are the people who are thinking about the Emperor, Roman Emperor Empire yeah. every day. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but like, because like, I remember when I went to the university that I went to, I was interested in, this is this is kind of like a sad, I, I kind of mentioned that I talked about that I was into doing Mesoamerican stuff until I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you the reason why. When I went to do history, I was interested in studying pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, specifically the Triple Alliance around Tenochtitlan and, and Mexico and everything like that, especially their spiritual worldview and everything like that. When I arrived at university, I was first confronted with the fact that, one, we do not have an archaeology department, so you, you'd have to transfer universities if you wanted to study that subject. Hmm. Two, uh, you would need to learn Nahuatl, a language that you could only really learn by taking a program in Mexico. If you wanted to uh, do that, you'd have to go through a program at the University of Chicago, oh, which anybody in history will know is basically like the best university in like one of the best universities in the world when it comes to history. So that would be the only path for me to be able to learn the language that I would need to learn in order to do that thing. And then third, that if I wanted to go to grad school for the subject, pretty much everybody who was working on this subject in English was entirely focused on post-colonial Mesoamerican history and studying like the Spanish conquest and uh, basically Spanish Mexico, unless I wanted to go to UNAM, which is the Universidad Nacional Autonomous de Mexico, which is like a humongous university in Mexico City, but and I think it's one of the oldest universities in like the Western Hemisphere. But it's entirely in Spanish. And if I did not have, you know, I was learning Spanish, but if I did not have like fluent Spanish, right. would not have been, you would not be able to go to university in a language no. that you're not fluent in, right? No. So, uh, so then I, uh, I realized that it would just be easier for me to focus on America instead and focus on digital stuff. And so I kind of had to give up on that dream. It's never too late. It is never too late. But I also am turning 35 in two months and I have a almost two-year-old. So I feel like any big ventures back to school would be having to do a lot of consideration. Tricky, tricky, tricky. Well, I learned a lot today Mm -hmm. and I appreciate that. I'm very proud of this one. And Trey, you made it so much better. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for being here. So first thing, first first, first things first, if you do, if you like this episode and you want to tell us how much your male partner thinks about the Roman Empire, Uh please tweet us at atsprops.aliens on Twitter X. X. Yep. X Twitter. Yep. Twitter. That's the one. And I think we have a blue or sky. Or props on aliens on blueski. Yep. On blueski. And uh, Trey, thank you so much again for being here. This was so much fun. We we love having you on. And uh, where can people find more of your stuff online? Oh, they could uh, they could look me up on uh, on YouTube. Uh, Trey the Explainer should pop up. And then um, and then on Twitter, Trey underscore Explainer. I think my thing is. Yeah. Twitter, I mostly do thirst trap. <laughs> Yeah, Trey's YouTube presence and Twitter presence could not be more different. So if you want to learn about like archaeology and 
history and like all that kind of cool stuff. And also like a little bit of cryptids and, and, and paleontology and the older stuff. If you want to get all that stuff, uh, go to Trey on YouTube. If you want to hear uh, stories like, hey, remember the time that I uh, matched with somebody on Tinder in the Vatican? <laughs> That's where you go to Trey on Twitter. <laughs> oh man oh Amazing. those worlds colliding is crazy when when i when i get a million they might they might merge i don't know we'll see the dimensional merge I don't, I don't know. heck yeah uh tristan where can people find more of your stuff online if they want to hear your thoughts oh boy if that's a thing you want after uh hearing all this you can go to step back on nebula and on youtube like my thing is all about trying to understand how the world works by you know looking at the past and kind of doing what i'm doing here um yeah. most but kind of with more of a, a turn on like conspiracy theories and like challenging the american far right and uh terrorism mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff because that's just the stuff that i spent way too much time destroying my mental health studying as a grad student i hear you click clacking away on your keyboard i wonder what that's about uh Scott, if I wanted to learn about uh-huh. uh, the L conspiracy in the Superman comics, where hey, would I go? That's a good video. That's a good video. That's from like, what, 2017, 2018? Maybe. That's a good video. That's uh, my YouTube channel, NerdSync, N-E-R-D-S-Y-N-C. If you want to learn how Superman is tied to a lot of like Jewish culture, that's what that video is really about. And it's really fun. And uh, I make videos all about comics and cartoons and movies and things like that and using them to teach about real world history, philosophy, culture and art. It's a lot of fun. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I just goof around. I'm working on a video right now about how there was a strike in in 1971 where people in Scotland, like 30,000 children in Scotland went on strike to That's where Scott's from. Yeah, that's where I'm from. I'm from Scotland. And uh, yeah, all these children went on strike to save Scooby-Doo from being taken away from the BBC. And I just thought that was, oh my goodness. I thought it was a fun story considering all the strikes going on. And, uh, yeah, so underrated, that's, that's amazing type of nerd sync video is when you show that you have this really deep interest or really deep knowledge of the business of how the comic books were made. Yeah, uh, like when you get into like the real gritty about like different artists and creators and oh. such like that. That really cool stuff. Thank you. Uh, I guess I also didn't mention that I have video. Like my, my my by the time this comes out, my video should be about American propaganda and how the U.S. uses money and influence to basically make cap keep supporting capitalism around the world. That's awesome. Um, speaking of capital. I mean, if you good, want but... to help us um, pay mortgages <laughs> and um, eat food, uh, you could sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probably not aliens. And if you sign up through that uh, part of your membership of Nebula for as long as you stay a member directly helps us out. And you Super get helpful. episodes early, Scott. Theoretically, I'm working on it. Theoretically. Theoretically. <laughs> um, Thank you to everyone who writes reviews of the show on Apple Podcasts and whoever, all the people who respond to Q&As on Spotify. We got to figure out how to like actually utilize that, but everyone keeps responding to stuff on Spotify. And I'm like, that's awesome. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for telling your friends about this show. That's how the show grows. It's just word of mouth. Really great place to send people is a website, probsnotaliens.com. Very simple. It's got links to everything over there. So go check it out. Yeah, that's all the things. That's all the things. So until <laughs> next time, my name is Scott Nicewander. Oh, my name's Trey, and thank you. And I'm Tristan, and the truth is out there. Probably...
I, I didn't know what to do with that one. I got, I got <laughs> We're running out of I ways for stumped. you to say the word probably at the end of the show. I have said show. probably 90 something different ways now, and I don't know almost how I'm going to keep doing it. Almost hundreds of times. 